the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. <laughs> you do. I, do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to the Tree of the Back podcast. With one week in the Premier League books and the transfer window just starting to heat up, we have plenty to talk about it. There really is never one regular day of Barclays. This week I'm joined by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Hey, Kev, how are you, Enda? Yeah, all good. Yeah, how's it going? We've got a double whammy of guests lined up for you today. Shortly we'll be joined by ESPN's Kathleen McNamee to chat about Ireland versus Germany this weekend with Ireland on the cusp of qualification for the Women's Euro 2020 Championship. If they can overcome the massive task at hand against a German side who have scored 31 goals and conceded none in four qualifying games so far. Afterwards, we'll be chatting to Dan Kilpatrick of the Evening Standard about Spurs with plenty to cover there, including the seismic return of Garrett Bale to English football. The big news today, of course, is Thiago to Liverpool. It's finally done after a drawn out saga over the past couple of months. Phil, you must be pleased with that one. Yeah, um, kind of took me by surprise. Um, Paul Joyce, what was it, about nine hours ago at this stage, tweeted that Liverpool had finally made their move, and a lot kind of moved pretty quickly from there. I mean, like even as recently as yesterday, the day before, it like pretty well connected people like James Pierce saying that the move might still be a bit away, will be dependent on on outgoings, and in kind of classic Michael Edwards style, he's kind of pounced. Not that nobody was expecting it because this has been touted for you know, like you said, kind of like six or eight weeks now, but he. He kind of surprised people, even even though we were expecting maybe a move. It kind of came a little bit out of nowhere, but it's great. I mean, I was trying to think of the last time Liverpool signed just a really nice-to-have player in a position that wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. So you think about, like, Van Dijk and Allison, obviously brilliant world-class players in their joint, but in positions that were a massive problem for Liverpool. Whereas in midfield, OK, not the most creative aspect of the team, but still very well stocked with some great players. It's just nice to add a proper world-class player and kind of further cements the idea of Liverpool as a destination now, which hasn't been the case in a long, long time. Um, all the way along the past couple of months, um, the main stumbling block seemed to be finances um, and whether or not they'd be able to fund it with maybe selling Gino Wijnaldum, um, Marco Grujic. Um, there's been talk recently of, of uh, Ryan Brewster being sold to, to try and fund a deal. But in the end... It looks like they've got a, a bit of a bargain here with um with the finances that are being being thrown about with twenty million pounds. Yeah, and uh, it's spread out over the full lifetime of of the four year deal. And um, like obviously that'll that, that'll suit Liverpool down the ground in terms of paying five million. But like you said, I mean, like the idea of the fi- of having to sell to buy was so entrenched in basically every report about him. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next couple of days there is a bit of movement on that front. Mightn't be exactly twenty million packaged out. But if there's movement on Harry Wilson or Grewich, or like you said, with Brewster there, the idea that there might be him going out with a, with, a, with a buyback option in there, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there is movement out because it did seem so heavily reported that it probably is pretty close to the bone that uh, they, w- they would need to move somebody out to afford it. And it must be frustrating from um, a Manchester United perspective to see this sort of transfer 
Um, and the relatively nominal fee for a player of this calibre go by without United really having a shake at it. Yeah, I mean, their their name has been thrown in there really since June, July. Um, but obviously, the more interesting story about Thiago was that he was pretty much a done deal back in 2013. And then the brains trust of David Moyes and Ryan Giggs decided for some reason <laughs> that uh, they hadn't seen enough of him or he, he wasn't good enough for whatever the decision-making process at the time was. But um, yeah, obviously, you never want to see Liverpool or any of the teams United are trying to catch up mm. um, strengthen. I do think... What's what I find interesting about Liverpool's setup is, you know, Klopp has put together this midfield trio, if you like, of a group of players who are kind of better than the sum of their parts, particularly Wijnaldum, Fabinho, and Henderson, with Milner kind of filling in when required. And when you kind of bring in Cage out of that mix, who I think is kind of technically better than all of those three, it just seems to upset the balance a tiny bit. So it'll be interesting to see if he can maintain that balance going forward. But I mean, it's it's a nice problem to have. And I think Thiago mm. will be a great addition, not just to Liverpool, but the league. I'm really looking forward to seeing him. But yeah, it's uh, it's a very disappointing one <laughs> uh, yeah. from a United perspective. Because um, as you say, it's not really a position Liverpool needed to strengthen too much. Yeah. I still think they need, you know, probably better backup to the front three. And Brewster looks the most likely to leave as well. He's been linked with Sheffield United this week. Um, which I think would be a shame because he had a very good loan spell in the second half of last season and looked very sharp in pre-season, particularly against Salzburg in the match um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mm. So I think that would be a shame for him. But uh, like you said, I mean, Thiago is a fantastic player to add to the squad. Um, Phil, it made a good point there about um, kind of really the embarrassment of riches that Liverpool seem to have all of a sudden in midfield. Um, and we were kind of resigned to probably seeing Wijnaldum leave. What kind of what would be your best three or, or the trio in midfield that you think um, would suit um, Klopp's system the best now that Thiago's thrown into the mix? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one, Kev. So, like, all the talk, even the last couple of days, was that Wijnaldum had a bit of a chat with Klopp and the kind of Barca thing seems to settle down a little bit. Now, that could all change pretty quickly again. But even the talk from the Catalan media is that maybe the conditions probably aren't quite there to have him yet. It might point to, to him staying for the rest of the season, leaving on a free next year which would leave Liverpool's hand even stronger again. But um, you'd imagine that Thiago's going to feature as one of the two further forward as opposed to a, a single six. You'd probably look at Fabinho, Thiago and Keita against some of the, the weaker teams for a front foot team and then sub in Henderson and, uh, or Wijnaldum for, for Keita um, to give a bit more stability maybe. I think it also opens up the idea that Liverpool mightn't sign a replacement for Lovren. Uh, I think it kind of further entrenches that idea. You've heard a little bit that uh, Klopp sees Fabinho as being suitable to be yeah. the fourth choice centre half uh, and have Thiago as that option either in a, a double pivot at, at six and kind of a 4 2 3 1 or even on his own or use Wijnaldum or Henderson. Um, so I think it, he acts as definitely a bolter to the midfield, but he nearly acts as making Fabinho half a six, half a centre half, if you know what I mean. Um, so it, it, I think it opens up the playbook a small bit for Klopp um, and gives him a bit more to, to, to tinker around with. Um, but with Thiago's injury record as well and the way these games are going to come taken fast, I would expect a degree of rotation in there as well. Yeah, and all the players that we listed there, we still haven't mentioned Ochtel Chamberlain. So yeah. I think he just goes to show yeah, the, the strength and depth all of a sudden. Um, in the United kind of have had their own... Um, transfer saga I suppose over the past few months with, with Jaylon Sancho um, it's been kind of rubbish by Dorman at this point um, but it's it's still kind of lingering away there in the background I suppose 
on a scale of one to ten, um, what, what rating would you give it at the moment of it of it happening this summer? Oh, it's uh, bringing out the bipolar nature of <laughs> my summer, but um, I, I wouldn't rank it too high at the moment. Um, you know, uh, reports are that he's he's very happy in Dortmund. He played very well during the week, and then went on this Instagram love fest after. You know, saying <laughs> so which was pretty telling. But um, you know, the reports are still that if a fee can be agreed that he'd still welcome the move, but yeah. he's not going to force it through. And it looks like that's what's going to be required potentially. So I'm still hopeful, but, um, you know, considering mm. they're pretty much missing out on everybody else at the moment, it's, it's hard to be too, too hopeful. Um, but you never know. Woodward usually gets a bit desperate towards the end <laughs> of these things and gives in anyways, similar to Maguire last year, the price didn't really change in the last couple of months and same with Fernandez in January. So, you know, it'll only take a couple of bad results to start the season and, and who knows what will happen in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I'm still hopeful of a couple of players coming through as well. Um, uh, somebody I've been speaking to is still hopeful um, closer to the club that they'll get a centre-back and a left-back and a right-winger, but um, they, w- they wouldn't say names. So mm. that could be anybody at this stage. So uh, mildly optimistic because you know it's Thursday night and we've watched a bit of football today but <laughs> um you know not not overly confident um i suppose the only slight hope was that you know van der beek was you know done pretty quickly but again yeah. that was van der Sar kind of pushing that from the ix side um as opposed to woodward pulling off a master stroke there so um any other deals that they do complete if they do complete this year won't be as swift or smooth as that one um so we'll just have to wait and see but for now in my mind i'm just kind of selling what united have there for now and hope that they don't run themselves into the ground like they did post lockdown and um, there's reports tonight um from miguel delaney in the independent that um united have been kind of looking at ismail Assar of, of watford who um is supposedly on liverpool's radar as well um would he be i mean he seems like a great player but he he's not Jadon Sancho, calibre of, of, of profile or talent, would you be happy to get him in and feel as well? Would you be keen to get him in as a, as a backup really to the to the wide players at Liverpool? Um, I think he, from what I've seen of him, he plays mostly off the left as well, which United have sort of three players who like to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I can't see him joining United. It feels like one of those that their name will just be thrown in because I assume he'll want to leave Watford um, this transfer window as well. And they'll probably want to get most of their money back off from him if they can. I mean, he was a very expensive signing for around 30 million last August. So um, I can't see United going that route. Yeah, and like it's interesting. Um, with Dominic King from the Daily Mail was uh, on Twitter today or this, this evening rather, saying that Liverpool have started to speak to Watford about it. Uh, like you said, Kevin, he's been on the radar for a while and been mentioned in dispatches a little bit. Uh, it's one of those I'd say that if Liverpool do sign him it'll be closer to the window closing when Watford are desperate to get a bit a bit more money in the window or in the door rather because um, the 40 million that's being talked about at the minute sounds a bit spicy if Liverpool weren't going to go whatever 15 million higher for uh, for Werner or for yeah for about 15 million higher for Werner I don't know if they'd go to 40 for um, for Sarr but he, he suits the profile of player that Liverpool will be looking for kind of a young hungry player with loads of scope who won't demand to play every week his wage demands wouldn't be crazy either. Um, <clears throat> another problem for 2022, I think it is now, is that he'll join the rest of our front, or two of our three in the front line going off to Afghan. But we'll worry about that bridge when we cross it. 
Um, I think he'd be a good signing. Financials might be a bit iffy, but there hasn't been many other wide players linked, so he might actually just end up being um, the, the easiest one to sign. We're joined by ESPN's Kathleen McNamee to review Ireland's Euro 2022 qualifier with Germany this Saturday. Thanks for coming on, Kathleen. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Really happy to be here. Um, So the stats paint their own picture in this one. uh, Number two versus number 32 in the world. 31 goals and none conceded. Undoubtedly one of the best teams in the world. Is this as daunting as the stats suggest for Ireland coming up against uh, this German side? I think it is like I think it's hard to look at the team we have and the team Germany has and say that anything other than a draw would be a massive result for us. Um, if we were ma- able to go to these two games and get a point out of them, I think Virapal and the whole team would be very, very happy. You know, Germany's record in the competition alone kind of speaks for itself. Um, between 1995 and 2017, they won every single Euros. So that was six titles in total. They have eight titles altogether. You know, they've played this competition so many times. Their team is basically made up of Wolfsburg and Bayern Munich players who have competed at the highest level for the last couple of years. You know, Wolfsburg just lost in the Champions League final to Lyon. Um, their experience is just immense. But at the same time, I like I wouldn't entirely write us off because I do think we have a lot of experience in our team as well. Um, you know, you have players like Katie McCabe who have been at Arsenal for years. Um, Denise O'Sullivan, you know, there's some really good players in the Irish squad, but the 31 goals in four games, like it's just, it's hard to look at a record like that and think, how are we going to come up against it? You know, Leah Schuller, I think, has scored a goal every two games of her international career and she's like in her early 20s. So the players on the side are absolutely immense, but I'd say they'd be confident enough or hopeful enough, at least, that they'll be able to get maybe a draw if possible. But um, Paul said herself that the limits will be tested when they play Germany. And from there, they'll know what to do. So to me, that kind of says that she is looking at these games going, OK, how many goals can we not concede? And then we will see what we have to do against the likes of Ukraine, Montenegro and Greece to actually qualify for the Euro 22 tournament. I suppose it's, it's going to be a, a good barometer to see where we are in, in terms of um, the other sides in the group, especially. Um, I know the season is in its early days, but how is the Ireland team shaping up? Um, there seems to be a nice spread of players playing at a high level in the in the Women's Super League um, around Europe uh, and here in Ireland. Yeah, we actually have like some very experienced, very high performing players, you know, um, people like I said, Kenny McCabe, she plays with Arsenal. She's been there for years, one of the top performing teams in Europe. She was playing in the Champions League recently. So, you know, she was up there against some of the Paris Saint-Germain players. And of course, you have Caldwell at um, SC Sand. She obviously captains the side and she would play against a lot of these players like all the time in the from Bundesliga and she has the added advantage of the fact that Germany kept playing when a lot of other leagues didn't so you know she has a few months of to the season behind her um, and then you have the likes like Denise O'Sullivan is probably one of the most underrated Irish players in the history of football you know she plays with uh, North Carolina Courage in the National Women's 
league over in the US and she has World Cup winners calling her like the engine of the team. Sam Mewis, who was obviously just moved to City in an absolutely massive deal for the Women's Super League, says that she is like the glue that holds that team together. And, you know, Courage are the team to beat in the US. So there are a lot of very impressive players in the Irish side. Um, you have the likes of Fahi, just became captain at Liverpool. And obviously we have the exciting youngsters coming up, Megan Connolly and Ellen Malloy getting their first calls up. And they might not be exactly the sort of players that Vera Paul looks to to bring out in the game against Germany, but it's really nice for them to get into the squad and also look ahead to games like Ukraine and Montenegro and maybe, you know, get a run out in those. There's been a little bit of needle um, in the run-up to this one. Um, Vera Pau took issue with Germany saying that they're going to leave some of their top players out um, out of their game against Montenegro, um, which is a couple of days after the Iron Game. Um, she said, the top players will not travel to Montenegro, which is, in my opinion, is not fair play. It's false competition. It will have an influence on the game because those players only have to play one game and then they're off. So they will put their 100% energy into it, even if the scoreline is not going well for us. They will keep going because they will have no incentive to take their foot off the gas. And that is why I don't think it's right. Um, so it kind of looks like the Germans, if you read between the lines, aren't taking Ireland lightly. Um, is that something that we can take into the game, considering some of the big results we've had over the over the past couple of years? Definitely. Like, I think it is reassuring for the side to look at a team like Germany and for them to say, right, well, we're going to make our best players play 100% in this game and then not care what happens in the next one. But also I can understand why Paul is annoyed because there was no necessity for um, Voss Tecklenburg to say that. You know, she could have just left the players out when they actually did travel, I think. Mm. The players mentioned it was like Alex Pop, Huth and Hendrik, who are all in the um, Champions League final. So like they've obviously had quite an intense couple of weeks with that because that was a one week tournament. And then also Dabritz, who's in PSG. So again, she was competing in the Champions League. But you look at like the players that Germany still have in their squad and you're like, well, is it that big a deal that they're leaving out these couple? You know, you have Marathon, who was shortlisted for the Ballon d'Or she came third in 2018 to like Ada Hagerberg and stuff you know I think it's maybe playing a little bit of mind games from the Germans and unnecessarily so because they already have such a incredible side I don't know if they're just trying to make it more entertaining for themselves or what exactly it is but I think it is it's nice to look at our squad and to think well okay they think we're the most um competitive team in that in that group but also I think anyone, even if you weren't a massive football fan, could probably look at the results and say Ireland are the major stumbling block to Germany, scoring more goals, keeping clean sheets and winning this group outright. Uh, it's been a chaotic kind of three or four years for the Irish women's team. You know, the player strike, then Colin Bell did make progress, and then he kind of left suddenly. Um and then some of the players threatened to actually retire if there was another internal appointment within the FAI, and that led to Vera Pau. Do you feel that there's a different feel around the squad now, or is it still kind of simmering under? Because obviously this could be a very short-term deal if we don't qualify um, for the manager. I think there is. Like I think you've seen it from the minute she stepped in, and obviously she comes from like a much bigger tradition of football and like women's football than anyone we've had at the helm um, before for Ireland. And even you saw today, like when the women were training, they had like specialized black training kits with 2020 of the campaign to like increase women's sport and women's participation in sport on the back. 
And I think there is a much better attitude around the whole team. You know, they're kind of getting players to the forefront. They're talking out more. Power Self has been really great when it comes to like media appearances and talking. And I think she's appearing on second captains and off the ball and stuff in the coming days to talk about the games. So I think everything has led to a better place. Now, whether actually in the camp that feeling is still there, I'm, I'm not sure. But from everything I've seen from the outside, it very much feels like we've entered a kind of new generation and a new age with the Irish team. Um, and I think it's like it can only be a good thing. Like the fact that the Euros is in England in 2022, like it's a massive opportunity for football here, especially women's football to really like increase its profile and increase the profile of all these great players that we have. You know, it's right across the water. Hopefully at that stage, everything will have calmed down a bit in terms of the global situation and we will be able to go over to games. Um, and I think stuff like the players being attracted to the WSL this year can only help the Irish cause as well because we have such a close link between England and Ireland when it comes to football players coming backwards and forth. A loss on Saturday is by no means the end of the world um, for Ireland. What's the situation for us going forward in qualification? So obviously you want to win the group, but that is probably looking unlikely enough for Ireland. So at worst, if we come second place, we go into a playoff against five other sides for three places. Um, the next best thing, if we don't win the group, is that the best three runners up and the group winners go through so it's really important in the coming games to like for us to score goals as is the nature like there's 47 teams competing at varying levels because it's women's football and there's quite like a top heavy group so what's really important for Ireland in the coming games is scoring goals and racking up as many as they can um, if that's against Germany if it's against like Greece or Montenegro they need to like get their score up and get that goal difference up so that when it comes to comparing the best runners up in the group that we go through on that because as we know from Irish football over the years going into a playoff is not exactly the sort of situation we want to land ourselves in when it comes to internationals <laughs> and fairness we're, we're well green in um in playoffs at this stage so I'm sure they take a, a, a lot of confidence going into that um, so Ireland meet Germany in what will be a huge game in the history of women's soccer here in Ireland and that's on RTE this Saturday afternoon at 1pm so tune in wherever you are and support the girls in green. Kathleen, thanks very much for joining this evening. Thanks for having me lads. We're joined by Dan Kilpatrick of the Evening Standard to, to talk a little bit about Spurs. Thanks for joining, Dan. Hope you're well. I'm very well, Chaz. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get into the bail stuff, Dan, Spurs had a bit of a scare this evening in Bulgaria. Um, what looked like a, a fairly crazy finish there. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was an interesting one. I was covering it from TV because no reporters went out there because of the quarantine restrictions in Bulgaria. Uh, the feed kept going down, so um, it wasn't the easiest match report I've ever done. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, to be honest, everything about the game, from the coverage to the kind of empty stadium to the quality on show to the pitch, everything about it was quintessentially Europa League. It was like the most Europa League <laughs> ever. Um, and then... Plovdiv got two players sent off and gave away a penalty kind of in, all in one minute and just totally imploded. 
after going 1-0 up. And so Spurs got out of jail, really. Um, I think the only kind of takeaway is that Tango and Dembele scored the winner, and that could be a, a little turning point for him, given he's had a bit of a rough time under Mourinho so far. But apart from that, it was probably a game that's best uh, forgotten quickly. There's never a, there's never a regular night of Europa. I, I don't know if that's a phrase, but um, <laughs> we'll throw it in there. Um, it's been a hectic couple of weeks for the club, um, Dan, with the Amazon documentary coming out. They've had a couple of new signings. The arrival of Alex Morgs, Morgan was enormous from a women's football perspective. Um, and then the fairly underwhelming start against Everton last weekend. But the huge news is Gareth Bale returning. Um, and it looks like it's going to be a one-year loan deal. The prodigal son returning to White Hart Lane. Um, Dan, I think it's fair to say Bale has been much maligned over the past couple of years, but he's he's still a superstar signing in terms of talent and profile. What's the reaction been like in in and around Spurs to his return? Yeah, well, among the fans, they're you know they're dancing in the street. I think the vast vast majority of Spurs fans are giddy with excitement at this, and and quite rightly, like I think Bale is still a superstar as you say in terms of profile and quality I think he's still a player that can produce more match winners than most he's still got that kind of clutch player quality that we saw in the two Champions League finals he scored in and then the uh, 2014 uh, Copa del Rey final I think it was he scored that iconic goal as well you know he's a player that that can produce something out of nothing and win games and um, obviously he's got such such a (laughs) A great history with Spurs. Um, but yeah, I think everyone's kind of just really excited to see how it turns out. And you referenced the Everton game, and it was a really kind of deflating start to the season. I think more so than the average opening day defeat. So a lot of Spurs fans after that, I think it's fair to say, you know, really felt flat and were perhaps a bit uh, looking ahead to, the, to a, a long season with Mourinho slightly kind of ominously. Um, but this has given everyone a massive lift, and I think yeah, w- when the deal gets over the line, it'll be it'll be huge for the club, both in terms of kind of profile and also on, on the pitch as well. I think you know it, it has the potential to really transform um, what Mourinho is trying to do. The one kind of stumbling block um, that has prevented Bale from leaving Madrid sooner um, has been the finances needed to make it worth his while. Um, you know, with the astronomical wages he's earning. What are the numbers looking like from a Spurs perspective? Are they justifiable, really, given the circumstances we're now in with COVID um, and especially Spurs' attempts to, to furlough their staff earlier this year? Well, the, the numbers are apparently uh, not quite as astronomical as first reported. So I, I, what I understand is just the whole deal, so the one-year loan, is going to cost Spurs less than £15 million. So that's including a, a loan fee and obviously a portion of his wages. And Real will still be paying, paying the majority of his wages. Um, you know, whether it's justifiable, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a really big question. I mean, I think it is important to say that Spurs didn't furlough their staff in the end. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they did try to, but they, they reversed that decision. Um, I guess... You know, football and salaries are all are all kind of relative, and for me, it does it does sit a bit uncomfortably when you consider the the situation we're in, particularly when you consider 
that there are EFL clubs as we speak, you know, yeah. struggling to survive. You know, Macclesfield, I think, you know, went under, although that wasn't directly a, a, a shutdown thing, as I understand it. But there are clubs who potentially will go under if we can't get fans back soon. So, yeah, it doesn't sit entirely comfortably for me. But, but I think from the first point of view, um, you mentioned the Morgan signing. You mentioned Amazon. Um Obviously, Mourinho as well. A lot of what Spurs are trying to do is about kind of growing the, the profile of the club. You know, they built the stadium, they built the training ground, and now Daniel Levy's trying to build a brand. You know, build Spurs as one of the biggest brands in the world, and you know he will calculate that, that the money they spend on sale will, you know, will be recouped in you know whatever it might be, eyeballs or shirt sales, however you want to put it, sponsorship arrangement so I think Spurs believe that it's a you know it's a price worth paying for him in, in kind of more ways than one Dan it's uh, Phil here um, Bale's obviously the, the headline grabber in terms of uh, incomings but um, it's not the only business Spurs are doing at, at the minute there's Sergio Reguilón also coming in from, from Madrid uh, with Spurs looking like they're going to they're gonna pip United there and it was interesting uh, art piece from Adam Bate on Sky Sports today suggesting that maybe Reguilón and Bale Spurs might be able to go to a 3-4-3 with Reggion on one side of that four and uh, another new sign and Matt Doherty on the other side. Um, Mm. On on this podcast, we obviously have a vested interest in Doherty being an Irish international. Do you think a system like that where Doherty gets to play as a wing-back like he did at Wolves is important for him long-term at Spurs or do you think he could actually make it work in a four like he was in against Everton at the weekend? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit gutted you told me about that piece. I'm literally about to write something really similar for tomorrow's. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've obviously been scooped. Um, but yeah, look, I think at the risk of sounding like massively hipster, I think Regilon could be you know, even more important than Bale. Um, I think there's kind of no point in having great wingers like Son and, and, and potentially Bale if they're if they're too easy to crowd out. And you know we. It's so, so obvious that the impact that two great fullbacks can have when you look at the success of Liverpool over the last couple of years. You know, Spurs have been trying to play this system where Ben Davis kind of tucks in and forms a back three and then one fullback goes forward. And that was Aurier last season. It was going to be Doherty this season. And it's just too predictable. It doesn't work. You know, you need balance. You need, you need players going forward on both sides. Um, and hopefully in Reguilon and Doherty... Um, Spurs will not have that, and it'll be the first time they've kind of had two, you know, flying attacking fullbacks since peak Danny Rose and Carl Walker. So that's really exciting, and I think that could be more transformative than Bale coming in. Um, as for the, the the formation, I think they could still play a four-three-three. So what they could do is they could get Hoiberg to kind of drop back between the centre halves and players a kind of traditional holding midfielder, and then release Doherty and, and Regulon. Or they could definitely play three at the back with those two as, as wing-backs. Um, I guess the problem with uh, with three at the back is then just about you know fitting in uh, Son, Kane and Bale up front, which Mourinho will, will, will want to do. I could see him playing a kind of 4-3-3 system. Um, but yeah, I think Doherty's, you know, like Reguilon, is, is a really kind of exciting and potentially transformative signing. Um, because Spurs have, have gone from having really strong fullbacks under Mauricio Pochettino in kind of 16-17 to, to it being one of the weakest areas of the team in the last couple of years. Dan, it's Enda here. Um, as a United supporter, I had two and a half years of the Mourinho experience. 
Um, and similar to Madrid and Chelsea, um, there is this huge divide that he creates in the fans. Some uh, grow to despise him and w- what he's doing at a club and others go on to you know, defend him uh, to the point where they always, almost become Mourinho supporters uh, as opposed to uh, sporting the club. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, have you seen anything like that yet at Spurs or is he still kind of in you know, the early days of, of winning people over? There's definitely elements of that already. You know, I can't I can't deny that I've I've seen I've seen some of that. Um, it almost does feel a little bit kind of culture warry at times. You get people that will kind of defend him to the hilt, and this is mainly on, on social media. You know, to be honest, that's that's what I'm talking about here. You know, yeah. you get people that will, will defend him to the hilt, and, and people that will criticise him no matter what. And you know, it's a bit boring, but I always tend to think the truth is, is normally somewhere in the middle. But you know, that's that is what Mourinho does. Um, kind of rightly or wrongly. Um, so, yeah, th- there's definitely elements of that. But I think at the moment, you know, I think Spurs fans on the whole have taken quite a pragmatic view of his appointment. And, and the kind of view is, you know, it, it may not be um, great football. We may not be pretty. Um, we may not always like his rhetoric and the stuff he says. He may be divisive. He may crowd out young players and or even, you know, um, much loved some senior players but but it will all be worth it if you get Spurs over the line to win a trophy I mean that's what everyone's kind of in it for they're so desperate for silverware now Spurs fans because it's been kind of over well over a decade um and they they were so close under Pochettino so now it's just about the the ends justifying the means really um and the hope is that Mourinho will be the guy to, to kind of get some silverware and then we can you know all forget um, about the, the kind of slightly turgid football or, or unpleasantness along the way. Dan, that kind of brings me on to a, a point that I was going to make. Um, and kind of what, what Spurs outlook for the season? I mean, they kind of have a one-year hit now with Gareth Bale um, on a one-year loan. Is is top four enough? Should they be, you know, looking at competing in, in, into City and Liverpool stratosphere? Or do you think that the vast majority of fans would be happy with a, a little bit of silverware just to kind of overcome that drought um, and anything in the Premier League then as a bonus? I think now Bale and Regulon are looking likely to sign. I think it's got to be a top four challenge and silverware. I have said before this week that if Spurs won a cup and, and would finish sixth or seventh, it would be, it would be a decent going. Um, but I think... This I think this last week changes things, and I also don't think they're going to be done in the transfer market after Bale and Regulon either. I think they're still trying to sign a striker and still trying to sign a centre half. So by the end of the window, expectations might have really dramatically changed. Um, but I think, yeah, I think Spurs have to be competing in and around fourth, um, probably you know the likes of United, Chelsea, and Arsenal. Um, and I think they have to get over the line or all come very close to get over, over the line in Europa League, uh, FA Cup uh, or, or Carabao Cup. I think that's, that's those twin aims have, have got, to be, got to be it for the season. I'm surprised to, to hear that um, you say that they're on the radar for a striker because how Pochettino's era ended, you know, it kind of became pretty evident that he wasn't being backed in the transfer market. And Spurs seemed really heavily reliant um, on Harry Kane. Um, from an Irish perspective, you know, we were really looking forward to seeing Troy Paris uh, and if he was going to be that number two. But uh, he's gone out on loan this year. 
has what's changed at Spurs? Um, I suppose in Daniel Levy's mindset that he's willing to to back Jose Mourinho in the transfer market, um, and they're finally willing to go out and spend money. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, and I, I think a lot of it does come down to two things really. One, I think is is personality. I think Marie, you know, Levy, if you watch the documentary, you'll have noticed he kind of looks slightly in awe of Jose a lot of the time on that documentary. And I think you know, Jose is, is doing a good job at, at persuading him to open the purse strings, basically. Whereas I think Pochettino was always a manager who was very particular about the signings he wanted. They had to be players that would fit his philosophy and fit his system. We know that Jose is much more pragmatic and will, you know, he will take um take players and then kind of work with, with what he's got really. Um and I think both Levy and Pochettino were, were were both quite reluctant to make signings for different reasons and there just wasn't enough probably kind of there wasn't enough sort of positive tension there, positive pressure between the two of them. But I think that's really the case now with, with Jose. He'll be putting a lot of pressure on Levy. Um, behind the scenes and in public and for now it seems to be working um, I think the other thing is, is what I mentioned earlier is, is kind of profile I think you know, Spurs have finished the training ground now they finished the stadium and the only thing left to build really is the team um, to be fair to Levy he always said once he's finished those two projects he'd start building the team and I think we all thought the shutdown would mean that wouldn't happen but um, it seems like he's, he's sticking to his word and you know he's trying to to make Spurs um, you know, more competitive on the pitch after a few years of of um, really kind of meagre spending. Dan, you, you touched already on the kind of brand building that Spurs are undergoing at the minute, uh, everything from the new stadium to Jose to the, the deal with the NFL um, and the, the Amazon documentary, obviously, at the minute. Um, the, uh, another big step in that in the last couple of weeks or the last couple of days even is the, the signing of Alex Morgan that we mentioned already. Um, now, it's a short-term deal, so her impact on the pitch might not be massive. But how big of a deal do you think it is to sign somebody of her profile, especially for Spurs' presence in America? Yeah, I think it's a massive deal. And they have got her to the end of the season, so um, it's not as short-term as, as first reported. But yeah, it's a huge deal. I mean, she's got more Twitter followers than, than Harry Kane. He's obviously the, the captain of surprise. <laughs> and she's got more Instagram followers than, than the entire club. So... I mean, there, there just will be people in the US right now who had never heard of Tottenham in last week who are now buying Tottenham shirts. You know, there just will be. Um, so it, it's huge from that perspective. And it's also huge for the women's team who only turned professional, I think, just over a year ago with promotion to the WSL. You know, they're a relatively new project, um, the women's team. And, um, you know, Spurs ignored them for far too long, to be honest. So look, not to take the moral high ground on this, but it does go to show that it's worth investing in, in the women's team now. You know, if you can get someone of Morgan's profile on a free transfer, it's not cost them a penny. She'll be paid quite well, but it won't be kind of astronomical wages, particularly not compared to what the men have played, obviously. Um, so if you can get someone like her in for a relatively low cost, then it, it can do absolute wonders for your, for your profile around the world. And you know, she is no exaggeration to say that she's you know, probably joined Spurs mm. Hall of Fame in terms of signings, along with kind of Ardiles and Villa and Van der Vaart and Klinsman and Gaza and obviously now Bale if he comes back. You know, she mm. she really is that big for the club. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a massive deal and I'm going to 
keep eyeballs on it this year, definitely. You, you just mentioned briefly before that this mightn't be the end of Spurs spending. I mean, if they do go the 3-4-3 route, surely they'll need another centre-back. Um, have you any thoughts on who they might still sign at this stage? Yeah, I've, I've heard one name. I'm not going to say it because I want to write it in, in a couple of days. But um, yeah, I think I think it's not a huge priority centre half, but I do think they'll they'll try and get um, someone in if they can. Mm. Um, obviously, lost for Tongan, um, and I think Mourinho is not going to stop wanting a striker because because Bale's dying. He obviously wants a, a very specific kind of forward. And again, if you watch the documentary, I think there's there's a clip of a board meeting where. Daniel Levy basically says, yeah, Jose wants a very certain type of forward and it's really, really hard to find. I think in other words, like an old school kind of battering ram. Um, so Spurs will still try and get someone like that if they can. Um, I think that'll be the priority, but but definitely if they can do a deal for a centre-back um, and then kind of get rid of Foyth and um, Carter Vickers and possibly Aurier, then they'll definitely do that. I just have one eye here on... Um... AC Milan versus Shamrock Rovers and Zlatan Ibrahimovic um, seems to be doing a, a pretty good job so he could, he, he could be back up on Jose's <laughs> radar. Yeah, it did, um, it did come up last year actually but Jose sadly ruled it out. Interesting time so ahead for Spurs um, enhancing their profile on and off the pitch these past few weeks so it'll be really interesting to see how they get on this year um, especially in the second coming of Gareth Bale. Thanks Dan, thanks a lot for joining the podcast this evening. You're very welcome. Pleasure guys.